This is the World in Brief from The Economist. Our top stories. Ukraine said it was compiling evidence that Russia perpetrated the attack that killed 53 prisoners of war on Thursday. The two countries have spent days blaming the other for the explosion. Ukrainian officials also called for an international investigation into the massacre. Earlier, Volodymyr Zelensky, Ukraine's president, called a strike on a prison which killed 53 Ukrainian prisoners of war, quote, a deliberate Russian war crime. Gazprom, Russia's state-controlled energy giant, cut off gas supplies to Latvia after the Baltic state said it would pay in euros rather than in rubles. The company accused Latvia of violating supply terms, but did not divulge specifics. Russia had already halted gas deliveries to several other European countries, including Poland and Finland. Joe Biden again tested positive for COVID-19, just days after leaving isolation for an earlier bout with the virus. The White House physician said the president is not experiencing any symptoms. The Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, America's public health agency, issued an advisory in May about the possibility of, quote, rebound cases for patients who use Paxlovid, an antiviral drug that reduces the risk of hospitalisation and death from COVID-19. Supporters of Maktada al-Sada, an Iraqi cleric, forced their way into Parliament for the second time in a week. His followers are demonstrating against the nominations of Mohammed Shia al-Sadani, a pro-Iranian rival of Mr al-Sada, as Prime Minister. In last October's elections, Mr al-Sada's bloc won the most seats, but it has not formed a government because of a political deadlock. Some 120 people have been injured in the unrest. A committee of Zambia's official creditors, headed by China and France, said it had reached agreements on a restructuring of the southern Africa's country's debts. Zambia stopped servicing $17 billion of foreign debt in November 2020, with its economy weakened by low copper prices and the COVID-19 pandemic. The deal looks likely to unlock a $1.3 billion loan from the IMF. Brazil and Spain reported deaths relating to monkeypox, the first fatalities from the virus outside Africa. Monkeypox, which is similar to smallpox, though less likely to kill, is spreading across the world, including America and Europe. The World Health Organization recently declared the outbreak a public health emergency of international concern. Governor Kathy Hochul declared a state of emergency in New York, where the virus is spreading fast. On his flight home from a 60-day, quote, penitential pilgrimage to Canada, Pope Francis said that he might one day have to retire. The 85-year-old pontiff used a wheelchair for much of the trip, during which he apologised to Indigenous people for the abuses inflicted on children in residential schools run by the Catholic Church. In his remarks during the flight, Francis called the mistreatment, quote, genocide. Word of the week, champing, the practice of camping in churches. And editor's note, owing to a technical error, some readers in Asia will not have seen the full edition of World in Brief on July 30th. 
Visitors to our website and users of the Espresso and Economist apps will also have seen out-of-date content for several hours. Sorry. And now, here's a deeper look at the day ahead. ASEAN grapples with crisis after crisis. Meetings of the 10-member association of Southeast Asian nations are normally dull talking shops. Yet the region has rarely been beset by so many crises. As the member states' foreign ministers convene in Phnom Penh, the capital of Cambodia, next week, their powwow is bound to make headlines. First on the agenda is Myanmar, whose murderous junta recently executed four pro-democracy activists. ASEAN is unlikely to suspend Myanmar's membership, but it may downgrade its representation even further and, perhaps, scrap the moribund peace deal it negotiated with the junta in 2021. The ministers will also urge China, which claims almost all of the South China Sea, to recognize the respective claims of ASEAN members, such as Indonesia and Vietnam. They will discuss the Rohingya refugee crisis as well as the war in Ukraine. Representatives from China, Russia, and America will attend. Arguments and walkouts are likely. Russia's not-so-great Navy At the Navy Day Parade in St. Petersburg on Sunday, Russia will try to project an image of marine supremacy. The River Neva will host a parade of 47 combat ships, gunboats, and submarines. There will be celebrations elsewhere, too, including Tartus on the Syrian coast, where the Russian Navy has a Mediterranean outpost. But the absence of festivities at the port of Sevastopol in Russian-annexed Crimea hints at Russia's travails. Sevastopol's ships are busy fighting Ukraine in the Black Sea. Though Russia claims control of the sea's northwest, its navy has suffered significant setbacks, most notably by losing Snake Island, a strategic outcrop it had gained early in the invasion. And Russia is still reeling from the loss of the Moskva, one of its flagship missile cruisers, in April. On paper, Russia's naval power still vastly outmuscles Ukraine, but observers may wonder if there's really much to celebrate on the Neva. Elections in Senegal Senegal is often considered a democratic beacon in Africa, but its light may be dimming. Legislative elections on Sunday are seen as a test of strength for President Macky Sall, who may run for a constitution-bending third term in 2024. He has remained ominously vague about his intentions. There have been numerous violent flare-ups in the country in recent years. Fourteen people died in protests in March 2021 after an opposition leader, Usmani Sonko, was arrested and charged with rape. He denies the allegation. Protesters claimed it was another attempt to kneecap the president's rivals. There were also protests last month when the Constitutional Council threw out an opposition group's candidate list because of an error. The group will still contest the election on Sunday, but some big names, including Mr. Sonko, are barred. Still, Mr. Saul's party was thumped in municipal elections in January. A repeat might scupper any third-term ambitions. England versus Germany again. 
The final of the Women's European Championships, which kicks off at a sold-out Wembley Stadium in London on Sunday, is beautifully poised. The contenders are England and Germany, old rivals in both men's and women's football. The Germans have a stronger record. They won all three of their group games, comfortably defeating Austria in the quarterfinals and withstood the attacking verve of France in their semi. They have also won eight of the 12 editions of the competition, dating back to 1984. England has never won the tournament and were defeated by Germany in the 2009 final. But this year, they have momentum and the raucous backing of home support, and they come fresh from a 4-0 win against Sweden, the top-ranked team in the competition. So no matter Sunday's outcome, this excellent tournament, which has raised the profile of women's football across Europe, is guaranteed a worthy winner. Weekend Profile Prague, India's Chess Superstar In February, Ramesh Babu Pragnananda, a 16-year-old Indian, became the youngest person to defeat Magnus Carlsen, a five-time world chess champion and giant of the game. Any victory over Mr. Carlson is remarkable, but this was comprehensive, taking just 39 moves. Chess has a rich history of such precocious exploits. Mr. Carlson himself was a teenage prodigy. But in India, a country starved of sporting success outside cricket, Prague, as he is commonly known, became an instant superstar. On Twitter, Narendra Modi, the Prime Minister, and Sachin Tendulkar, a celebrated former cricketer, gushed praise. Although young, Prague's stardom has been a while in the making. He started playing at the age of three when his father, a bank employee, introduced chess to the household to distract his sister from watching TV. By the age of seven, Prague began showing signs of genius, so his father enrolled him in a chess academy. Easy enough in Chennai, one of South India's biggest cities and a breeding ground for chess champions. Viswanathan Anand, India's best ever player, is also a Chennaiite. The head of the academy, R.B. Ramesh, a world-class player himself, was struck by his students' dedication. While his other charges struggled to watch the 10 videos he demanded of them each day, Prague would watch 30. In between hours-long practices of complex chess maneuvers, the pair would take a break by indulging in more childlike pursuits, playing hide-and-seek. The hard work paid off. At 10, Prague became the youngest-ever international master, the second-highest title in chess. Two years later, he became the second-youngest player to secure the game's highest, Grand Master. In 2019, when barely 14, he became the world under-18 champion. This weekend, he will continue his chase for glory when he competes with 2,000 players, including Mr. Carlson, at the Chess Olympiad, which started on Thursday in Mahabalipuram, near Chennai. In his matches, he will sport what has become his trademark look, sacred ash on his forehead, dabbed there for good luck. He scarcely needs it. The winners of this week's quiz Thank you to everyone who took part in this week's quiz. The winners chosen at random from each continent were Asia, Tetsuyuki Maroyama, Ito, Japan. North America, Quinn Lin, New York City, USA. Central and South America, Antonio Lemos, Petropolis, Brazil. Europe, Arne Tobias Odegaard, Bergen, Norway. Africa, Christine Reiter, Tunis, Tunisia. 
Oceana, Warren Twohe, Auckland, New Zealand. They all gave the correct answers of Flags, Mini Driver, Hitler's Bunker, Chippendale, and Eagle. The theme is golf, Flags, Driver, Bunker, Chip, and Eagle. And visit the Espresso app for our new weekend crossword, designed for experienced cruciverbalists and newcomers alike. Finally, here's the quote of the day from Joyce Kilmer. I think that I shall never see a poem lovely as a tree. That's the World in Brief from The Economist, available three times every day of the week. You can also hear interviews and analysis from our journalists, including our current affairs podcast, The Intelligence, on your podcast app. And subscribers to The Economist have access to each week's full edition in audio. Just download The Economist app to start listening.